We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. So before we get to this week's book and bring in this month's co-host, just a couple uh, items of the proverbial housekeeping. Um, Number one is I'm trying to record this on a different platform. I know occasionally uh, people are a little frustrated with the audio quality of Perpetual Chess at times. So I'm trying a more expensive platform that may or may not have better audio quality. So please let me know if it makes a difference to you, um, if you notice no difference at all, or if it sounds appreciably better, um, please let me know. Uh, One thing I would want to mention is just... um, When we do the Skype interviews, obviously, the sound quality is variable based on the guests to begin with. Like, for example, the most recent episode to air was with Terry Chapman. Uh, Terry is one of the few guests who I've done where I call him on a landline. That happens every once in a while. And when that happens, it sounds a little bit different. I don't think the sound is too bad. But um, those I will still be doing on Skype. And then, of course, guests from India um Basi Mamin from Egypt sometimes the farther away um places with different internet capabilities the sound can be different and then there's always just random things at times too so anyway I know the sound is variable to begin with but if this sound is especially good to you please let me know or if you can't tell the difference that's good to know too um so that's the minor thing out of the way I also just wanted to quickly mention the coronavirus this is the first episode I'm recording since things really escalated. So first of all, I hope you guys are all holding up well, both uh, from a health perspective and from a mental health perspective. I know it's a hard time for a lot of people. Um, There's a lot of change in my work family life as well. I'm home with my kids um, a lot more now. I started homeschooling them yesterday. Um, I'm hoping it won't impact the podcast too much, but I may be a little bit less consistent. I may occasionally be a day or two late, which I wouldn't be under normal circumstances. Um, And I don't know if I'll have as much preparation time for guests, to be honest. Um, I just, a lot of my hours um, are being spent with my kids that previously weren't, which, you know, there's some good things about it too. I'm definitely going to keep the podcast going. I love doing this and happy about the trajectory, but um, just wanted to warn you guys about that. And the other thing is, I don't know how much time you guys will have to listen. Um, I know that uh, your lives are all a lot different all of a sudden. So no one's commuting, which is when I listen to a lot of my podcasts. Um, but you also might have more free time, uh, depending on your family and work situation. So anyway, just wanted to wish you guys the best and acknowledge that that's going on in the world. And uh, we'll keep you posted about that. 
Um, so with all that out of the way, getting on to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. For those of you who haven't heard it before, we take a break from interviewing people to recap a beloved chess book. Uh, this month, we will be discussing The Road to Chess Improvement by GM Alex Yermolinsky. He is a beloved and super strong grandmaster here in the U.S. Uh, here on Perpetual Chess, I know that uh, Grandmaster Jan Ludwig Hammer mentioned this book as he mentioned that he was a big fan of this book. Uh, I am John Watson, who is a great book reviewer, great chess historian, great player uh, in his heyday, um, called it an exceptional chess book. So it's probably not as well known as some of the other books we talked about, but it is quite um, quite beloved by many. Um, and my guest co-host this month is a friend of the podcast, an active adult improver, a chess teacher, a chess content creator. He's written um, written articles for Chessable and U.S. Chess Online. He is rated about 1850, and I am finally going to let him talk. Brian Castro, how are you? Hey, Ben. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on, and uh, I am... Uh... All of those things that you tell me and uh, and some more, I suppose, as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to just it. mention a few more things, your your day job, where you live, stuff like that, just to give people a little more flavor of where you're coming from, Brian? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am a, uh, a business person. I, I work in the financial services industry. Uh, I also have uh, three children, so a very busy family life, as you mentioned, with the coronavirus. The kids are now at home. And I'm also uh, trying to work more from home so that I'm not, uh, of course, uh, uh, spreading any or, or being exposed to things. But uh, uh, in any case, uh, in all of that, I do try to uh, spend a little time uh, studying chess and playing chess uh, here and there. Um, so it's something where I, I started, I learned as a child, my father taught me how to play chess, uh, but I didn't really get serious or get the, the chess bug until I was in college and uh, found out that there was this thing called the U.S. Chess Federation where you can get an actual rating. So I started uh, buying chess books and, and doing all of those things. It was also the early days of the Internet Chess Club and uh, started playing a lot of Blitz there. I think I missed, probably missed a few classes here and there uh, doing a Blitz session. But uh, kind of – and then as I got into the work life and having children, kind of like probably many adults – uh, that you've talked to kind of gone uh, away from chess for a little while uh, and then come back, you know, it keeps calling me back. So uh, I'm back. Uh, I've been playing actively or, or trying to play actively and study actively for the last, I would say year and a half. So uh, I think uh, that pretty much sums it up for me. Excellent. Well, Brian, first of all, thanks for not bailing on this podcast with the, the coronavirus stuff. And I, I know that, um, like you said, everyone's everyone's life is in a bit of upheaval, um, and I certainly would have understood if things had become too intense. But on the other hand, we both had read this book, so in a sense, that's the hardest part. Oh yeah, yeah. And definitely. why? And Brian, um, I I have my own history with this book, which I'll get to in a minute. But uh, why uh, why did you? So you were one of the people that graciously volunteered to guest co-host and uh, suggested a handful of books that you'd be happy to talk about. And and why is it that this was one that, that you felt um, would be good to discuss? Well, it's kind of interesting. It, it was published around 1999, and I, that's around when I started playing uh, rated chess. So I probably picked up the book uh, probably in the late 2000. I was probably rated around 1500 or so. And uh, I actually lived in Cleveland at the time. And at, I believe at the time there was a slight overlap, although I never met him in person, uh, where Grandmaster Yermolinsky actually lived in Cleveland as well. Although on the podcast, I think he didn't have glowing reviews of his time there. Uh, so I thought, well, this is kind of cool. And I saw his book. And at the time, too, I was very into uh, reading kind of uh, self-improvement books uh, like uh, Jim Rohn and Tony Robbins and Brian Tracy type of books. And so I kind of saw this as sort of the uh, the chess version, you know, someone who is trying to better his chess and, and, and a grandmaster nonetheless. So uh, I just uh, really fell in love with uh, his uh, authenticity when I started reading through the book. Uh, he was really honest about his uh, shortfalls. As, uh, and as you can see, obviously, he's a grandmaster and a U.S. champion, so he's very uh, uh, strong as well. So it was very refreshing as opposed to seeing kind of a best games collection uh, that is, you know, doesn't you know it makes it seem like the players never make any mistakes 
Yeah, I, I echo that sentiment. And the, the podcast interview that Brian referred to is um, on episode 15, in very early days of Perpetual Chess. Uh, GM Yermolinsky was nice enough to join me. Um, and I'd always been a fan of his, as, as I'll explain more about in a minute. So I definitely, if you want to know more about this grandmaster, you should go back and listen. I actually re-listened to the interview. I mean, he's he's a very likable guy. He's, you know, he's one of these... Um, Soviet emigres who pulls pulls no punches, just tells it like he sees it, and he's got a sense of humor. And but the reason I was especially drawn to this book, and the reason I had read this book uh, when it came out, is the guy was just a crusher um, in in my sort of heyday as an up and coming scholastic player. I grew up in Philadelphia, and he was playing the sort of continental chess, uh, the professional circuit uh, here in the United States. And he just won so many tournaments. And back in those days, you know, the world was less flat. The internet um, hadn't fully taken hold. So even these guys who were not world champions, I think Yermo peaked around number 50 in the world, something like that. They just seem so mythical. It just seems so unfathomable to me to be playing in these tournaments like the World Open and the New York Open and the U.S. Championship and just beating everyone. So um, he was I, I and I felt like I knew nothing about him at the time. I mean, I think that was more common than where um, y- you the the top players seem farther away. So I was excited to read his book when it came out in 1999 and I already had it on my shelf uh, when Brian suggested it. So I am rolling with the original book version, Gambit Publications, 1999. And uh, Brian, what about you? I also have the uh, 99 version and uh, some of the pages kind of fall out occasionally, but uh, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's still held up over the years. <laughs> Yeah, it's in better shape than most of my 20-year-old chess books, I have to say, even though, of course, it has like my highlights and stuff like that. But it's not falling apart. The book is also available on Kindle um, for 10 bucks, so excellent value. And, of course, we're going to dig more into the book. But I will say certainly anyone listening to this can, can get something out of this. Um, so let's dig into the zeitgeist of when the book was published. Uh, in 1999, I mentioned that Yermo was one of the top players in the U.S. Um, his peak rating was in the 2700s U.S., and uh, Fide was a little bit below that, but just an incredible player. Um, what was going on in the world then was uh, with the world of chess. Who cares about the rest of the world? <laughs> uh, just kidding. But um, in the world of chess, this was an interesting period. There was... Um, Disputed world championship at the time, as we've talked about before, and those of you who are longtime chess fans um, or uh, well-studied chess fans may know, um, there was a period where there were different factions saying that they controlled who the world championship was, which started when uh, Kasparov and Nigel Short formed a rival faction to FIDE in the 1990s. And then for about 10, 12 years, something like that, there was a period where it was disputed. So in 1999, uh, one world champion, Khalifman, won a FIDE knockout to become world champion in 1999. Khalifman actually gets mentioned in the book a couple times because he, like Yermolinsky, is from St. Petersburg, Russia. Um, he succeeded Karpov as the FIDE world champion. And of course, Kasparov was the Grand Chess Council world champion, which uh, came after the Professional Chess Association, the organization that he founded with Nigel Short. Um, Kasparov, of course, was kind of undisputed as the strongest player in the world still at that point, even though he lost to Kramnik a couple years subsequently. Um, So, and they were trying to, and uh, Kasparov, uh, one other notable thing about that period, he was trying to organize a world championship match, but he had um, um, Alexei Shirov won the right to play him, and that sort of fell through. same thing happened with an Anon match that fell through, and then finally he played Kramnik later. Um, so that was a lot going on at that time, but it really didn't matter much in terms of uh, Yermolinsky's. I mean, he's played guys like that. I think he played Kasparov five times, but his book is more, I don't know, it's it's it draws from his whole career back to when he was a youth in, in St. Petersburg, but it doesn't touch on the the elite echelon of chess as much. It's more of, like Brian said, a personal reflection of his own chess development. So we've already got into Alex's background a little bit, but Brian, do you want to share a few more biographical details about uh, Yermo, as he's called, or Uncle Yermo? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, Well, uh, you know, he was actually the U.S. chess champion a couple times, which uh, uh, in 1993 he uh, shared first place with uh, Alex Shabalov. 
And in 96, he was a sole champion. Uh, he was also has won, uh, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of these uh, large Swisses, like you mentioned, the uh, Continental Chess Tour, and he's won uh, the World Open probably. The, I believe it's the largest uh, tournament in the United States, or it has been, and he won it three times in uh, 93, 95, 96. And uh, in 99, he shared first place with 900 players um, and won, uh, I guess, uh, he didn't did win the first prize in the playoff against uh, Greg Serper. Uh, but it's... Uh, um, it's interesting. Right around that time, he was really winning. Like you mentioned, he was uh, winning everything in sight in the United States. So definitely uh, uh, someone good to to learn from. And I think that made his book very attractive at the time. Yeah. And it was quite quite refreshing that the book turned out to be so um, relatable because the I don't know, I, the, I felt like these... Um, at least to me as a as a teenager um you know observing the chess world like getting getting my feet wet in the chess world these uh these soviet uh emigre grandmasters just um they they seemed gruff from outside appearances but he's really um very very funny self-aware guy um as he talked about when when in the when i interviewed him i mean he's he's had jobs in all walks of life he cleaned the bathrooms when he worked at the mechanics institute in san francisco as he told me so very very humble guy for as brilliant as he is um but so with all that out of the way um Let's talk about before we dig into the sort of the content of the book. Um, for any listeners wondering what level chess player this is a good book, what do you think, Brian? Well, I guess I, I think it would be more past uh, begin. It's a little too heavy for beginners. I would put it uh, like I said. I was fifteen hundred when I first read it, and now rereading it as a an eighteen like an eighteen fifty uh, player, I, I could see that. Uh, I think a lot of the advice. Uh, is very relevant for, uh, say, 1,500, 1,600 players. Uh, but the actual games, some of his analysis, obviously he's writing that these are like from his personal notes. And I think you, you should be a fairly strong player to fully grasp that. But I definitely think you can get something un- out of it, uh, even I would say as low as uh, 1,400 plus. You know, So if you studied sort of basic tactics, this book isn't here to teach you about uh, tactics and strategy. It's more about how do you take uh, your games and, look at them and how can you use those to improve your chess? Yeah, well said. And it's pretty timeless in that regard, as we'll talk about in a little bit, even the opening section, like the actual opening analysis, I'm sure um, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't withstand the rigors of today's engines without being adjusted, but it's more a teacher man to fish type of book. And I agree. It's challenging. Like you say, Brian, for say someone 1400 or something, but there's definitely nuggets in there that you could definitely read it and learn from it. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, I think the book's about 300 pages, so, you know, parts of it move faster than others, but then, but definitely anyone would gain a little bit from it. So we're going to, we're going to dig into the book in a minute, but first we're going to take a break, um, and hear from our friends at Chessable. So with the entire chess world focused on the candidates tournament, we wanted to tell you about an awesome free course from Chessable. Super GM Pantala Hare Krishna is posting a game of the day video for each of the 14 rounds of the FIDE 2020 candidates tournament. And they're also compiling all of the key instructive lessons in one place using Chessable's Move Trainer technology. So after you watch the games or if you're catching up on the games, Chessable.com is a great place to do it, whether you're doing it as the tournament goes on or you're catching up on this podcast later. Highly recommend you go to Chessable.com and check out GM Hari Krishna's free candidates course. Okay, and we're back. Brian, do you uh, want to read? Let's see. So we were going to read the first two paragraphs of the book, and then you felt we should add one more paragraph also from the introduction. Um, So how do you want to do this, Brian? Do you want to take the first two? Sure. Okay. I can do that. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'll go ahead and read it here from the introduction. The book you're about to read is essentially a collection of Alex Yermolinsky's games and analyses I've made in the course of my everyday work that began a long time ago. Having started to attend a junior chess club at the age of eight, I was marked as a promising kid, but hardly a prodigy. I think in the early stages of my career, my results didn't match the time and effort put in, and I constantly let other kids surpass me. They would quickly jump through the grades up to category one level, 
while I was taking a year or more for every step. It was the most frustrating thing at the time, but it may have also been a blessing in disguise. I got to play a lot of games against worthy competition, quite a few tournaments in every category, until I absolutely, absolutely, until I was absolutely ready to move on. And having moved up a step, I would already be good enough to compete at the new level, or at least avoid being blown away. This kind of slow rise, even if it's highly atypical for a future grandmaster, has its merits. If anything, it did a good job preparing me for future disappointments and frustrations that essentially make up a life of a lifelong chess career. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, and that, that really gives you a flavor for what the book's about. And then Brian, there was another part later on in the introduction you wanted to read. Is that right? Yeah. Do you mind if I just, uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Basically I mean, he talks about his career, but I'll read the, uh, the last couple paragraphs before we get into the meat of the book. The problem I had to acknowledge was the stagnation of my development. I was simply going nowhere. It's not that I lacked experience. I was 28 years old then, and I had been playing chess for some 20 years up to that point. It was rather a sad realization that my game was not improving. In search of inspiration, I decided to follow the most common advice one can find in the works of Elekine, my most favorite player, and Botvinnik, one of my least favorite players, which can be put into simple words. Study your games. Ever since, every game I played has been extensively annotated. Care to take a peek? Be my guest. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and I am glad you added that in because that really gets to the central thrust of the book, Brian. Um, that's definitely, the I would say, the, the number one theme. Um, and yeah, and you can see he has a pretty personable writing style. Um, so good stuff. And then yeah. the, the, the structure of the book um, so it's, it's kind of an unusual structure in that it has three big chapters and then there's basically sub chapters. Um, mm-hmm. so th- I'm not going to read the like 13 sub chapters there are in total, but I will say there's, uh, the three big chapters are trends, turning points and emotional shifts is part one. Part two is openings and middle game structures. And part three is tactical mastery and strategical and yeah, strategical skill. Um, so my favorite subchapter, I feel like this book starts off really strong. Now, Brian, I think we have different opinions about our favorite parts of the book. But to me, it's like it starts out super strong. And then the part in the middle about the openings, um, mostly I found I didn't find it as readable as I remembered. Um, but then it finishes strong as well. My mm. favorite subchapter was the one called Trend Breaking Tools. I'm showing three ways to fight against. An, so an example would be he's talking about three ways to fight against a negative trend in a game. And I, as I mentioned, uh, Grandmaster Ewan Ludwig Hammer, when he was a guest, he he highlighted that he felt like trends in a chess game are a um, an aspect that are sometimes overlooked in terms of like how to improve a chess or how to think about the competition, because everyone's always saying, you know, do your tactics, learn your openings and thinking about sort of the micro skills that you need to have. But there's chess is a psychological battle. Of course, this is something also touched upon in Seven Deadly Chessons by Grandmaster Jonathan Rosen. Um, but uh, GM Yermolinsky, and at this time, I don't feel like this had been written about much at all, but he gives an example to give you a flavor of the kind of thing he writes about. He gives three tips to fight against a negative trend in a game. Number one, put up a stubborn defense. Number two, create a position where your opponent has a multiple choice of reasonable ideas. So that's, a, that's an interesting one to me. So basically he's mm-hmm. saying kind of... Uh, you know, force your opponent into uh, paralysis by analysis. Um, and number three, sacrifice material to release the hidden energy of your pieces. And of course, he gives examples of all these. So I really like the psychological stuff in this game, in this book. He's very good about um, digging into the psychology of breaking through a barrier in your game and what to do against your opponent, what to do against lower rated opponents, all that stuff. Um, did you have a favorite sub chapter, Brian, or chapter for that matter? Yeah, I, I did. I, I, you know, I did enjoy that aspect of uh, the the book as well. The one that the uh, trend breaking tools, because again, like you, I, I uh, uh, never read anything like that at the time, uh, and his examples were very, very good. And we could talk about more about that later when we get to the favorite games. But I, uh, with the subchapter, I, yeah, I did enjoy his aspect on you know, opening structures because I think a lot of uh, amateur players, I guess you could say. Uh, we love to study different openings, and we like to talk about openings as if we're, you know, as if we're these grandmasters. And and uh, uh, but but he kind of says, you know, instead of like uh, trying to memorize all these lines, 
uh, that that you really just need to play it. You know, I think a lot of players uh, feel like they need to be ready before they take their their op- new opening out to the tournament hall. But uh, and again, he's at a different point of view because he's usually near the top of the uh, top of the charts, I guess you could say, in these uh, weekend Swisses he used to play in. But he, his view was, you know, play the line because you actually learn about it and then analyze it. And at the time, the engines weren't as good. So he probably meant analyzing it by himself. And then only after that, then you can check the databases and see where your analysis differs with uh, some of the top players and using the different uh, uh, new and chess yearbooks and such. Um, so I kind of liked it. It's sort of a backwards way of doing it than I think a lot of uh, amateur players do, which is maybe to study the book first and memorize it using Chessable, and then they go and play it. And and I think uh, uh, you get more of a um, a feel for the opening or when you experience yourself, when you experience why certain prom breaks were at work or certain things. And I, I really like that he emphasize that and he does mention he says you know well this might work for me and maybe not for you so he does kind of say that you have to find and i think he says this throughout the book that you have to find what works for you but uh, i like that he uh and he used examples through uh you know using several of his openings along the way so i i did enjoy uh, that part maybe a little more than you did but maybe because of uh, uh the way uh, i tried to learn openings kind of working through this yeah, I mean, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, my my general, I, I just don't love openings as much as some others, as you know, anyone who's listened to me regularly probably has has figured out. So I have my own biases built in, but more the more particular bias was I. It was such granular detail that mm. if he wasn't talking about an opening that I played. It was just a little hard for me to dig in, and I'm not saying that makes me like a. a you know, an, an exemplary chess student, like uh, that's to my detriment, but that is how I felt reading it. And I suspect I'm not the only one that would feel that way. So that's sort of my quibble with that chapter. Obviously, if you dig into everything he says and really think about and really break down how he learns little particular nuances in like the Benko, um, there, there's a Bononi part, um, there's, there's um, Slav stuff. I mean, there's lots of openings oh, touched yeah. upon. And I'm sure if if even if you don't play it, if you give it, if you really dig in and understand all the nuances of what he's getting into, um, you could learn a lot from it. But for me, I found that part difficult, but I still definitely understand uh, the broader point he's making. And I, I think it's a good one about, you know, learning, trying to learn the thought process of the opening. And I apologize, Brian, if this is later in the outline, I can't remember. Um, but one, one quote that really stuck with me um, was him saying, when he feels that basically you should never play a move that you've memorized in an opening that if you don't know why the move is played. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like, that's serious. That's a serious suggestion because it's so, you know, we spend so much time trying to memorize theory and that's a daunting task if you're going to really try to understand every move. But seeing how he breaks down the openings in this book, um, you he's you can tell he practices what he preaches. I mean, of course, it helps when you're a 2700 um, to be able to understand it. But especially in the engine age, if you make a make it a point to understand every single move, and now the opening books are so good, uh, even better than they were in '99 when Yermo published this. Um, you can understand every move if you put some effort. It's just it takes additional effort, and we all have limited time, of course. Um, but yeah, so definitely a big point of the book. Um, which brings us to the other themes of the book. So, Brian, what did you think? Um, what themes did you highlight from this book? Well, and, and I think you get this. You mentioned this earlier. Like, uh, Yermo's a very likable guy, kind of an everyman, I would say. I mean, obviously, he's very uh, good at chess. He was much better at chess than uh, the everyman. But uh, I kind of got this idea that he just kind of worked hard to get everything he got. He's very, very self-reliant in terms of his... Uh, chess improvement and so it's sort of that uh, idea that you need to learn to think for yourself you know because he talks about uh, some of his coaches you know in the soviet school of chess and they would tell him you know you never do this maneuver you never do that positionally and then he would find these games where the analysis showed that the going against the grain uh, was the right thing to do so he kind of bases a lot of what he's uh, telling us in order for it's part of the self-discovery and concrete analysis behind that um and that kind of consequently or or maybe subsequently uh, uh leads to the fact that you need to analyze your games and use that as kind of a jumping point to uh, improve your chess 
Yeah, he talks to be specific about uh, legendary trainer Vladimir Zak, who yes. discovered Korchnoi and Spassky and all these legends from uh, Leningrad, what is now St. Petersburg. But, I mean, he basically says there there was no secret sauce. I mean, he doesn't make Zak, he doesn't say anything particularly bad about him, but he doesn't make him sound like this, like, legendary teacher either. He just says, right. like, he was a good judge of talent. And, you know, he was always there sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, interesting. Um, as for my major themes, I mean, we've already mentioned these, so I'll just keep it short. But just how much we can learn from our own games, even at the strong GM level and the fact of chess as a psychological struggle at, at its core. Um, that's something that sort of a theme that runs throughout the book. Um, which um, I think some of this will come up with our favorite quotes. Um, so I, I'll, uh, I'll, Brian, you want to take this? Like, what, will we take turns reading these? Um, sure. Uh, do you want me to give my first one? I guess. Uh, sure. Yeah. Go for it. Actually, this was uh, very interesting too. I thought uh, it's on page sixty-six. Uh, uh, and he just to give a little preface, he talks a little bit about learning uh, English as a new language. So later he says, uh, "Who knows? Maybe chess should be observed, just like a language should be spoken around you in order to be understood and transformed into a skill." And uh, just a quick note, it reminds me, uh, you had uh, Evgeny Bereyev on the podcast, and he I remember you talking to him about him, and he kind of just said, you know, you should be with chess. If you immerse yourself in chess, you'll get better. <laughs> and it yeah. kind of reminded me of that. Um, okay, yeah. And uh, my uh, my quote is from the same chapter. That's uh, Oh, actually, no, I guess it's from the chapter just preceding it, from my favorite chapter that I mentioned, Trends, Turning Points, and Emotional Shifts. Um, and it's a bit of a long quote here, but indulge me. Um, he says, um, sorry for the delay. He says the computing ability varies from player to player, but in general, every strong GM is able to calculate deeply enough when needed. Exactly how deep? Well, it depends. What's the problem? Somebody like Vasily Ivanchuk would say, you could you just keep giving checks or attack his pieces or create threats any other way, and your opponent's answers are forced, then all you have to do in order to continue is to be able to visualize the resulting positions clearly. Easy for him to say. Visualization is the point where chess players begin to differ from one another, ranked by a degree of natural talent. Visualization is a pattern thing. It's much easier to mentally analyze a game you just finished rather than someone else's. Yet I get surprised every time every time I try to engage my opponent in a little post-game blindfold talk. Mostly I get a blank stare in return, and even after consulting their score sheets, most of my opponents, I'm talking 2200 strength, not my esteemed GM colleagues, are not able to understand what I'm talking about. It makes me wonder how they can play at all. Probably the same thought has crossed Kramnik and Svidler's mind quite a few times while they watched my feeble attempts to keep up with their blindfold analysis between drinks and white and Z bars. Everybody has their place in the hierarchy, but that doesn't mean it's set for all times and there's nothing one can do about it. Um, so, yeah, a lot in there. Um, I, I liked that quote so much that I asked him about the when he came on the podcast. I asked him <laughs> about uh, drinking with uh, Svidler and... Um, uh, Kramnik, and he shed a little more light on those tales from the bar, but the broader point, and that might come off as like, you know, I don't know, someone listening without reading the whole book might think it's a little judgmental of people who can't calculate like grandmasters, but I don't think that's the tone he was trying to convey. And it's not, it's not the overall tone of the book. It's more just, I think about the, the fact that you shouldn't view your visualization skills as a fixed, uh, a fixed skill. Um, you, sh you should work to grow them and that basically your growth is going to be inhibited if you're not working to, to grow that. Right. Yeah. I love that quote as well, but I saw you had it already. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> uh, should I go to my next one here? Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. This one, uh, is sort of, it's in the opening section. Uh, and I don't know if, it, well, let me, I'll read it and then I'll tell you what I got out of it. Uh, I will reveal a little secret in this situation. And he's referring to playing someone 300 plus points lower. There's nothing I want more for my opponents than to step away from mainline theory. Go ahead, surprise me, throw me off balance, make me think on my own, any way you call it. But there's a catch. You give me a good position after the first 10 moves with plenty of the pieces of the board, and I'll find a way to outplay anybody 300 ratings points below me. And I, I, he's referring here to, uh, I think, when players uh, 
use sort of dubious openings because they figure, well, I'm playing someone stronger than myself. I have to get him out of his superior knowledge. But he's making a good point here is that he's also just a better chess player. So even if he doesn't know the theory, he's going to be able to work this out. And he's suggesting that you really need to learn to understand your openings. Uh, and that goes back into what we were talking about in not playing any moves that you don't understand. Yeah. And it is, um, it's a common sort of debate that it raises generally about like whether us, you know, uh, non-professional players should be trying to play sidelines or trying to learn the best openings. Um, and I think it was, uh, Sam Shanklin has said like the, you know, the, the level, the caliber of your openings should be in correlated to the, the level of your ambition in chess. Mm -hmm. So if you're not like dreaming of uh, being world champion, then, you know, it's okay to play system openings, you know, the Kali or the London or whatever it may be. But if you are and you're up and coming, then, um, then you may not want to do that. And I think, uh, but I think just from a practical point of view, it's a, it's definitely a good quote to highlight because, um, it, you know, he's giving his honest perspective about like, if you should try some, you know, you know, far flung gambit when you're, paired up trying to catch someone off guard. And I definitely, I agree with the advice overall, but I think it's especially true. The stronger the player you're playing, the less you actually, the less likely you actually are, you know, likely to trip them up with like the wing gambit or something like that. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay. Good stuff, Brian. Um, my next quote is, so I mentioned earlier that I don't love the opening chapter, but I do want to add the caveat that he ties it together. The last five pages, he has a section called a final words on, on openings mm -hmm. that I just consider those five or six pages just to be like an absolute tour de force. Um, so I was kind of dragging, dragging through the whole, like, you know, granular analysis of each opening, but then he mm -hmm. got to this overall philosophy of the opening. And I just thought this was just like amazing synthesized advice. So if you have the book laying around, even if you've got a, like the rest of us, a huge pile of chess books and you don't know when you would get back to it, I recommend you pick up, um, it's page 154 if you have the original version like us. Um, but if it's the Kindle, just go to where it says a final word on openings and read from read those next five, six pages. Here's a little snippet from what he says. Um, he says, so that's the way it is. I need to play an opening before I can study it. After I've played it and got a taste of the resulting positions, the lines and variations I saw during the game would that I saw during the game. Sorry, I'm going to restart that sentence. After I played it and got a taste of the resulting positions, the lines and variations I saw during the game would become a basis for future work. I will refer to the theory, of course, but any theoretical recommendations will be taken into account with a certain dash of skepticism, if only because I believe they're based on nothing else but hasty evaluations of someone else's games, often biased by the final result. I know I can't take them for granted without a complete research on my own. The purpose of this research is multifaceted. First, I need some knowledge of openings to stay competitive. Too many players of my generation I have known and used to admire could not make the adjustment to the ever-increasing pace of modern theory and slip back into a simplistic approach of avoiding critical continuations. The price they pay is enormous. Not only do they suffer from getting very little with white out of the opening and or putting themselves into difficult situations with black, most importantly, their chess style begins to change towards dry technical play. These days, you're not going to beat a lot of people by just sitting there waiting for your opponent to self-destruct. An aging chess player must keep rejuvenating himself by constantly sharpening up his opening repertoire. And those who do get rewarded by the amazing longevity of their chess careers. Look at Korchnoi, Timon, and Belyovsky. Their openings are the cutting edge, and that's why they're still a force against the youngsters of today. So that's evergreen advice, and it still applies to if you look at someone like Anand. Um, uh, he would be sort of, I think the, I mean, he's you know he's only fifty, but these guys, um, Timon in particular, was probably around the same age at that time, um, and yeah, just um, great advice about uh, how to approach the opening even as you get older. I mean, he's talking about grandmasters, but I don't think it just applies to grandmasters. Oh no, I definitely think that this is a, in a way, uh, and there's. It, it, it really, I think, is kind of a, a timeless advice because I, I, I think that even on an amateur level, uh, we don't need to play our openings at grandmaster level. So if we can understand our own games 
and analyze them and understand why you know certain pawn breaks are made, why you exchanged certain pieces, and just grow that knowledge with each game. Uh, you know, we we'll, we in our own respect, we'll we'll have a more in depth insight into our openings than uh, than our opponents would. So I really uh, I really enjoyed that part of the the book as well. Yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. And do you have one more quote, Brian? Uh, yeah, it's a short one, but I think it's a okay. really important one. Uh, the truth is, uh, this is from uh, page one sixty two. It's from the uh, tactical uh, tactical mastery and strategical uh, skills section, and it says uh, the truth is a chess player's main objective is to find good moves, and the last thing he should worry about is attaching them to his or worse someone else's theoretical beliefs, and uh, so so this one uh, the preceding section of this book he was talking about. Uh, the difference between Tal and Botvinnik and how Tal, even though he was known as this attacking tactician and Botvinnik was known as this positional uh, technician, they they just kind of bashed at each other. And he said, yeah, maybe sometimes Tal was more of the aggressor, but, you know, 90% of the moves were just good moves. And that it was only, you know, that 10% of the moves that was different. And basically as chess players, we should not think to, you know, if the position calls for an attack, we should try to, you know, make attacking moves, but not think, well, I'm a positional player, so I can't do that. You know, and, uh, and he does talk about, you know, eventually, uh, you know, cause he talks in the trend, the first chapter about, uh, changing, uh, the pace of things and our openings might lead to certain things, but that when it comes down to it, when we're at the board, we should really not worry about what people are thinking about <laughs> our style or what we, we think about our style and really just try to play what we think is the best move. Yeah, yeah, definitely um, good advice, which I think has become even more obvious, you know, 20 years down the line um, with uh, these uh, engines sort of preaching uh, anti, anti-dogma, anti you know, very soon. Yeah. And, you know, the top players always preventing each other's plans before they can happen and so on and so forth. Um, okay, on to favorite games, Brian. So... Um, I could have picked a couple from this, but, and again, it's cool that he's picking, you know, he was, uh, he first started to ascend as a chess player, your Malinsky did when he was like co-champion of the city of St. Petersburg in, uh, in, at the age of 15. Um, and he's got games dating back to then, but then through his, his whole career, you know, of course he's played legends like Yusupov and Kasparov over the years. And, uh, the Yusupov game at least is in there and pretty, pretty memorable how he, how he writes about that. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff there. But my favorite game was um, one against, uh, I think he's now a grandmaster. He was an IM at this time, uh, Igor Helmanetsky mm-hmm. uh, in the 95 US Championship. Um, and it's in for the opening chapter. Um, and it's a Bononi hybrid type setup. Black doesn't play D6. So Yermo gets to play both D5 and then E5. Um, pushing the knight back so it's just uh, a sort of classic like take the center and then uh, Helmanensky castles and uh, Harry the H pawn marches down the board and yeah. uh, just um, uh, 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 kind of a crushing cool win by Yermo and he talks in the book periodically about how it's you know um, touching on on the quote that Brian previously read about how he's more of a positional player but you wouldn't know it seeing some of the games like this. And that just, again, and also listening to him talk about the importance of playing blindfold and visualizing um, players of this caliber are just good at every aspect of, of the game. And this, this is a fun attacking game. Oh, absolutely. I played through that game as well uh, after I, I saw that was your favorite game. And, and I thought, uh, well, I'll have to pick a different game because this is <laughs> as wonderful as this one is. I'll pick it. But I, I love it because he, uh, uh, you know, people, I mean, uh, you know, this is 20 years ago, but he really was, and like you said, with the, the internet wasn't as uh, big. I mean, he was all over the place. Uh, and, and and some of these games in here, even though uh, he does put some of his losses in here as well, which I, I, I give him a lot of credit for, but there are some beautiful uh, games in here, including this one. Yeah. Uh, and I like the one you picked too. So let's, let's hear more about it, Brian. Yeah. Let me uh, get to my notes here on it. I, I, uh, Pick this one. Uh, I play the uh, Sicilian on hand, and even though it's a slightly different variation, what I liked about it is, uh, well, this one just had a lot of things in it. It had a lot of the uh, Sicilian themes in there in terms of the queenside attack by black, uh, you know, kind of this um, 
And this happens in the Nidorf and several variations where the pawn structure in the middle gets a little uh, jumbled up and then Black can't castle because his kingside pawn structure is, uh, is a little busted. But uh, it's kind of in the, I believe this is in the uh, trend setting uh, chapter, the psychology. And he talks about one of his ways is to sacrifice material to, to unleash the energy. And, and he does a pawn sacrifice, a classic D65 pawn break. And uh, even though he's a pawn down now, you know, his, his rook gets out and it really, uh, he's able to trade down into it. I think he wins the exchange uh, uh, and eventually uh, into a favorable end game. And this was, it's one of those games where it was kind of messy at the end. Like, it's a, you know, sometimes you see these games where the person loses the exchange and then they, they resign because they, you know, they just uh, are confident that their opponent's technique is going to, go forward but here you know he's playing another grandmaster and he keeps playing on and he chases his king around with his queen and his bishop and eventually gets to a point where i believe he was either going to uh win his opponent's queen or or checkmate him so i just thought it was a really great uh game and the notes the one thing um and we mentioned this before uh the notes and his personal thoughts during the game that he shares are just uh wonderful yeah, and this is, of course, against Johan Hjartersen, Icelandic chess legend who's been on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gr- great guy and um, amazing player. And, you know, first board of the Olympiad, um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they were first board. Um, so just uh, Titans colliding, big stakes, um, pretty, pretty cool game for sure. Um, okay, improvement takeaways again. Um, we've touched on these before, but still can't hurt to, to mention them again. So Brian, what, how would you bullet point, uh, the improvement takeaways for our listeners? Yeah, I'll be concise. Uh, of course, uh, the first thing is obviously you need to analyze your own games. That's what this book is all about. Uh, learn about what moves to make and what corrections, but also understand your emotional state and understand how you can change that during the game. Uh, I also got, uh, having a critical eye about what you read. So when you're studying the classics, uh, as much as some of these old books are very explanatory, you know, uh, do your own research, do your own analysis. Uh, don't worry about style. You know, if you think yourself as a, I always uh, joke about this when I'm talking to uh, uh, other players who are, uh, you know, by rating or lower is that, you know, our style is uh, blundering some or blundering more <laughs> not right. really, uh, tactical or, uh, or strategic or positional. So don't worry about that. And really just learn about getting better at it. And don't worry about the, arbitrary demarcations of a player's uh, knowledge and skill and then uh uh, basically uh with the opening kind of flip it backwards you know play the game play it learn it you know learn it inside out and then work from there yeah yeah uh all all excellent points um and mine are basically the same same thing about just how indispensable it is to analyze your own games i mean think about your malinsky he's He's got all his games from when he was 15 years old. I mean, they weren't being published in informants, you know, that's just, that's just how he rolled. So um, it's definitely something one can take about it. And I can't remember who apologies to whoever wrote or said this, but someone has, has talked about the importance of just treating yourself like a chess player. Like no matter what your level is, if you're not like cataloging your games and analyzing them, then no one else is going to. So, Mm. um, so it's, you know, it's uh, gratifying in that sense as well. Like I know when I was a kid, I didn't, I was one of these, I had, a, I, first of my friend, Greg Shahadi, he was uh, hilarious because I mean, <laughs> he was hilarious in many ways, but um, he never had a score book and he always wrote on score sheets and then he would just crumble them up and put them in his pocket. So he, when he would come home <laughs> from a tournament, he would just open, empty his pockets and there would just be cr- a pile of crumbled score sheets. And this is how he kept his games. Oh, and wow. And he wasn't, you know, then compiling them into like some beautiful database with annotated notes or anything. I mean, of course, he did have his dad to look at the games with him, which helped Mm. um, senior master Mike Shahadi, but um, not treating his games like uh, sacrosanct things, although he probably remembers all his games anyway. Um, (laughs) But um, so I did keep scorebooks, but I've lost a lot of my games over the years, like basically almost all of them from from my teenage years. Um, and, and I definitely regret it, not because they were any like, I mean, there's one or two that I would be proud of, but overall more, it's just, you can sort of see your evolution of a chess player, you know, warts and all in many cases, but still, I, I really wish I had at least the scores, let alone like annual annotations of what I was thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. That would be awesome to have. So definitely strong advice 
that I think uh, comes from this book, especially for you younger players who can avoid the mistakes uh, that, I, that I at least made. Um, and then echoing your advice about don't be scared to learn about openings um, and to experiment with openings in order to learn them. And chess is a psychological game. Um, never forget that you're playing a, another flawed human. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're belaboring these points, but he hits them in a lot of different ways. So definitely recommend the book uh, strongly. Um, yeah, it holds up very well. Um, and overall, how useful would you say it is in, for chess improvement? on a scale of one to 10, Brian? I, I gave it a nine out of 10. I thought it was uh, very good. Of course, I think if you're, uh, it, it does take work and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's, uh, it, it definitely is, uh, uh, for me, it was very valuable. Yeah, I gave it an eight out of 10. So I'm basically right there with you. And mm -hmm. even if, again, my, my primary goal, at least at this moment, isn't chess improvement. So even if chess improvement isn't your goal, I mean, the there's enough anecdotes in here and stuff like that that make it fun to read. And as a chess philosophy book sort of thing, it's uh, it's good stuff. So um, uh, good for a, for a wide, wide range of uh, potential readers. Uh, so what did you come up with for any quibbles with the book, Brian? Well, uh, let's see here. I think uh, one of the things I, I did feel, uh, you know, he has so much in the book and there's different little pieces of advice, but he's very... Uh, kind of uh he's kind of ponderous at times you know it is a kind of a self-reflective book and he kind of writes things but i'm not sure he quite made an outline before he <laughs> started writing each chapter uh and it's not that i'm not saying that takes away from it but i think sometimes i had to dig to get the the nuggets of uh wisdom from the chapter so that was one of them uh and then my only other quibble there is a chapter on a computer chess and i it's like three pages long. And I felt that he just sort of added that on the end because this really is the beginning of computers being somewhat strong. Uh, other than that, I, uh, like I said, it's one of my favorite books. Yeah. I don't have a lot of quibbles either. And yeah, the computer chess, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't seem like it fits in with the overall book, but still it's kind of like reading an essay about chess computers in, in 1999. So mm -hmm. in that respect, it's kind of an interesting historical document. Um, you know, he talks about stuff ranging from, the fact that, and you know, many other people have pointed this out. When Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, they didn't. He didn't think it was actually stronger than him yet. But to his credit, he did see the writing on the wall at the time of, of writing the book that that it was only a matter of time before computers um, would would supplant humans. But certainly in today's uh, engine age, it's not. You wouldn't. There's uh, there's better resources to read about today's computers. But you know, that's no knock on him. Um, Otherwise, I mean, obviously, it seemed to say this every month, an ebook would be great. Uh, I can't speak to the quality of the Kindle book since I didn't get it. I will say there's a, I would give this like a B plus on the number of diagrams, especially for, for a book published 20 years ago. I feel like it has more diagrams than most. Um, so you can, I mean, of course it's better to set up a set or use an, you know, use a app or tablet to play through the games as you go. But it is a book that you can read in bed and only, you know, you're only sacrificing, say, 30 percent of uh, of what you could get out of the book, as opposed to some books where it's like 75, 80 percent if you're not playing through the moves. Um, yeah. And the analysis is deep. So this isn't really a quibble. But I mean, if you're really, really going to study this book, uh, just be ready for some some hard work. But I do think that it is hard work that would pay off. Um I agree. And I think that's that's about it, Brian. Um, so uh, what would our closing remarks be about the the Road to Chess Improvement by Grandmaster Alex Yermolinsky? Well, I just saw this as uh, it, it's kind of like a, a very strong player uh, just kind of opening up his notebook and sharing his secrets. You know, is he... Uh, he, uh, it's like he opened up, you know, he has all these notebooks of his games that he's ever since he was a young boy and he just takes out the nuggets and shows us uh, this is what I did to get over these problems. And uh, I really thought it was, uh, it's sort of one of those things where uh, uh, if you're willing to do the work like he did, uh, you'll see, maybe you won't, might not become a grandmaster, but you'll definitely uh, uh, improve your game if you can, uh, if you can put in that hard work. Yeah. So well done by Uncle Yermo. Um, I hope he writes another book. So, I mean, he wrote one book subsequently, 
Um, it was an opening book, to, I think. It was. Yeah, a, I think so too. And it was about Sicilian, six years later. It was like, yeah, it was, so yeah. he's not playing as much these days, but and he's doing a lot of. Uh, he does a show, I think, for Internet Chess Club. Yes. Uh, of course, he's done some announcing gigs. Um, so he's around, but um, it would be great, Alex, if you catch wind of this. Um, if you could write another book like this, um, we'll buy it and read it. Definitely, um, and we'll have another podcast about it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, Brian, um, you are yet another generous soul who has uh, volunteered to donate um, the the moderate payment I would be willing to give you for for guest co hosting. So where am I going to be sending uh, this money? Uh, it's going to be uh, East Aurora Chess, and actually, it's a, a local chess club, uh, fairly new. Uh, I'm one of the founding members. I'm not the the founding. I'm not the organizer, but uh, I am one of the uh, first members. And uh, we kind of have a neat mission, and I'm not sure if it's our official mission statement, but we're we're, we're looking to uh, develop chess for people as a lifelong activity. So it's not just about become. You know, a lot of organizations promote uh, scholastic chess, which I think is great. But we're looking for you know someone who learned chess when they were a kid, never really studied it, but just wants to come and enjoy the game, and maybe play with a you know a buddy, make some new friends. Uh, I kind of call us like the uh, the cheers of uh, chess, you know, where everyone knows your name, and uh, that's the uh, organization that uh, yeah, I'd love to uh, uh, see a donation go towards. And uh, it is uh, it, again, it's the club where uh, where uh, I play, but it's a new club, and uh, it's just great to see. Uh, you know, you have soccer moms who come play and it is, you know, you have a couple guys who came uh, recently from the senior center who saw one of our signs up. And again, these aren't uh, hardcore competitive players, but we also, you know, a couple of national masters came in. And so we get a, we get a neat mix and it's neat to see this uh, uh, kind of see this collaboration between uh, really strong competitive players and really what you would call casual players who have no, no desire to uh, become competitive players. And I think it's great. And we're trying to encourage both, both groups to show up. That's cool, Brian. You got to love the grassroots chess and uh, the discerning perpetual chess listener might note that it was Brian who, uh, when I interviewed tournament director, Michael Reagan, it was Brian who sent in a question about organizing tournaments for a small chess club with disparate ratings. So n- now it all makes sense, Brian. Oh yeah, and that uh, if if I could just uh, briefly, uh, I did run my first event, and I followed uh, uh, Michael's advice, and I had two sections, and it went really well. Okay, good to hear. Yeah, Michael Michael knows his stuff, so not too surprising. Okay, so Brian, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the blindfold puzzles, but I'm gonna um, I'll record that separately. So I would like to thank you for your time again, especially under the circumstances. Um, and listeners, I hope you guys are, and girls are ladies, women are hanging in there as well. It's, um, yeah, it's a difficult time. Um, but you know, that, that's what times like this, it's nice to have an escape in chess. So, um, but Brian, thanks again. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, I am back to give you the blindfold chess puzzles of the month. Before I do that, I wanted to check to see if you guys are actually doing these puzzles. I know that a lot of people are enjoying the book podcast overall, but I just want to make sure that people are actually doing these because they're kind of a lot of work. So if you if you look forward to these puzzles, uh, please drop me a line, email, Twitter, Facebook group, and let me know. The other thing is, oh yeah, and while you're at it, let me know about the audio quality of this episode, as I mentioned earlier. And last but not least, I decided to do something different with this month's blindfold puzzle, and I'm going to give you games from the starting position. So I'll reel off the moves from the starting position, and then you tell me, and then you try to find the best move in that position. So you, while you're at it, you can also let me know if you are doing the puzzles, if you prefer this um, or you prefer the setup puzzles as we've been doing in the past, or if you like a mix, would be helpful to know. Okay, with all that out of the way, guys, here comes, um, probably you're sitting at home this time, given the coronavirus, so here comes a, a blindfold puzzle for you. Coming from the starting position, it is going to be white to move, find the winning move for white. So it goes E4, black plays C5, C3, Black plays knight c6, white plays d4, 
black plays b6, white plays knight f3, black plays e6, white plays bishop to b5, black plays knight on g to e7, white plays knight on b to d2, black plays bishop b7, white plays knight to c4, black plays pawn to a6. It is white's move. Find the best move. I'll repeat it and I'll go a little slower this time. Also, I'll of course list the moves in the show description. So if you didn't catch them all, you can look at the list of moves without seeing the answer. And then you can click through to the answer. So here we go one more time slower. It's going to be white to move and win after the following seven moves. E4, C5, C3, Knight C6, D4, B6, Knight to F3, E6, Bishop B5, Knight on G to E7, Knight on B to D2, Black plays bishop to b7. White plays knight to c4. And then black plays a6. And it is white to move and win. On to puzzle number two. This one is going to be black to move and win material. e4. e5. Knight f3. Knight c6, d4, eat xd4, nxd4, queen f6, knight takes c6, queen takes c6, queen e2 for white, and then black plays bishop c5, white plays Knight c3, black plays knight e7, white plays queen f3, black plays knight g6, white plays bishop c4, black plays knight e5, white plays queen e2. And it is black to move and win material with a forcing sequence. So I'll read it once more, a little bit slower. Going to be black to move and win material. This puzzle, I think, is slightly harder than the first one. Okay, e4, e5, knight f3, knight c6. White plays d4, black plays ed4, white plays knight takes d4, Black plays queen f6. White plays knight takes c6. Black plays queen takes c6. White plays queen e2. Black plays bishop c5. White plays knight to c3. Black plays knight to e7. White plays queen to f3. Black plays knight g6. White plays bishop to c4. Black plays knight to e5. And white plays queen to e2. And it is then black to move and win material with a forcing sequence. So that is it for this month's chess book recaptured. Uh, I forgot to mention earlier, but I already have next month's scheduled friend of the podcast, Neil Bruce, will be joining me and we'll be discussing two books. We're going to discuss two of the uh, tactics studying philosophy books, just in case any of you have lots of time to be studying chess. We're going to talk about rapid chess improvement, which is sort of a controversial tactics manifesto from the early 2000s. 
and the famous and universally loved Woodpecker Method. So Neil will be joining me to discuss those two books as long as life doesn't get too far in the way for either one of us. So you guys can look forward to that next next month. Thanks again for listening, and I hope everyone's hanging in there. Okay, bye. Thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, for making Perpetual Chess happen. I also want to thank all you guys and girls who helped me grow Perpetual Chess. That includes everyone who tells a friend about the show, everyone who writes a positive review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, whatever other podcast platform you may be on. All of it is appreciated and all of it keeps me going. But of course, most of all, I want to thank the people who provide financial support to the show. I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, John McCarthy, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oplin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, and Todd Kennedy. And I would also like to thank the following people and entities. They are... Aaron Waffler, Ace Fayega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Day's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am Alec Donnie Ariel, the Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schutt, Harish Srinivasan, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Moore, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, J.J. Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Kapala Krishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyovsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahalver, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, WGM, Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrinkouj, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, Zhivko Stoyanov, and that is everyone. Thanks, everyone. Catch you guys next week. Podcast Network.